0: Welcome to the She Can Fix It podcast, a monthly podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. My name is Dr. Alana Munger and I'm a second year resident here at Yale. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Claudia Thomas. We cannot speak about diversity in orthopedic surgery without talking about racial and ethnic diversity. Orthopedic surgery is in last place, not only for gender diversity, but also regarding underrepresented minorities. What better way to explore this topic than interviewing the first African-American female orthopedic surgeon in the country? Dr. Claudia Thomas is truly an inspiration. She has constantly been fighting through adversities throughout her entire career including becoming the first African-American female orthopedic surgery resident here at Yale, surviving a hurricane, as well as surviving cancer. It was truly an honor to speak to Dr. Claudia Thomas. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Thomas, I wanna thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and being with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Dr. Thomas, I was hoping you can describe what your life was like growing up in New York.
1: In retrospect, <clears throat> my life in New York was growing up with the American dream. I don't mean to sound sappy, but uh, things have changed so much in the, what is now the future <laughs> that um, it, I have to reflect on how life used to be. Uh, to start out with, I grew up with parents. That's a plural. and. Um, at the risk of sounding very provincial, that's the way it's supposed to be. Grew up with a mother who was able to raise her children and stay at home as a homemaker while my father worked and a father who taught the values and the spiritual leadership um, in the household.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I know that you say that your parents were your bigger, your biggest motivators. What were the things that they did for you when you were growing up?
1: My parents were um, the ones who gave incentive to my sister and to me to uh, take advantage of things that, that we could do and to progress and to um, satisfy their expectations. When they saw talent in me or in my, in my sister Catherine who has a law degree, they tried to nurture that. For example, um, I, I have this in my autobiography, God Spare Life, um, an explanation of a scene of having run home with a 99 on a math test. I was in fourth grade, and I had started showing talent for math, and I got very excited and came home with this 99 and um, showed it to my mother, and, and she said, oh, that's nice, baby. Show it to your father when he gets home. Daddy got home the same time every day um, and came home to his family and to dinner cooked by my mom. So these things that may be taken for granted today are very um, reliable aspects of, of, of life for those of us who have lived that. In contrast, when everybody comes home to a box of pizza that's been thrown on that kitchen island and takes their little piece and runs into what could be their little rat hole. And that's dinner, you know, that's quite different from what I experienced. So family ate together, we had conversation, we we communicated and we learned values, um, especially the children from the parents. So, so, So daddy got home at his usual time and I showed him my 99, I just couldn't wait for daddy to get home and he furrowed his brow. Now my father was usually a very jolly person and he furrowed his brow and looked at that 99 and said, what happened to the other point? Deflated as I was this gave me incentive to get perfect scores in mathematics. Math is objective. It's not subjective. And no one's going to critique your math and say, well, I think you should have used this adjective or you could have expressed yourself a little bit differently. It's either right or wrong. And there's no reason you can't get them all right. So that's what I learned to do in the fourth grade because my father expected it. And it became a major factor in um, achieving what I did achieve that allowed me to get scholarships to college and that actually led to orthopedics as I know it. I developed a love for math, particularly geometry, and geometry is a very important part of orthopedic surgery.
0: Yes, it is. That's, that's absolutely remarkable. Um, you also had a pediatrician um, who was also inspirational for you, um, and I was wondering if you talk about, was that the moment when you realized you wanted to do medicine or how did your pediatrician influence you
1: no my pediatrician was a model that you can do this if you don't see anyone who looks like you doing anything positive then you won't have the aspirations or you're unlike less likely, let's say to have the aspirations to achieve if all you see of black men in your neighborhood is them standing around on the corner with a a, brown paper bag with a bottle in it, laughing and joking, then you won't know how to dream of being an astronaut. You won't know how to dream of going on to higher education and becoming a physician or other professional. When I went to the doctor, I went to a woman, a a beautiful woman, I will add, um, who was my pediatrician, who was in in her starched white coat and acting very professionally and to me that said oh i can do that it did not inspire me to do that and unlike so many young people i've interviewed who were attempting to get into medical school or into a residency program i'm not going to sit here and tell you i wanted to be a doctor since i was five years old and broke my toe i don't believe that we learn what we like until we're much older and get a chance to see um different options that lay ahead of us i didn't become a a medical school um, aspirate until the end of my junior year in college i was a math major before that you know and then math sort of disappointed me and 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 i I went on to other things but um i think you learn what you like you learn what you're good at um, you learn what it means to be a teacher and that may or may not be what you thought, you know, what you thought you wanted to do. And it may not end up what you end up doing for different reasons. For me, I didn't have patience with children. So I looked at different professions and um, ruled things out. Seeing Dr. Pearl Foster just said to me that she can do it. She can fix it.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Um, I do want to talk about um, your experiences at Vassar College. And you first attended the High School of Music and Art in New York City. And then you went on to Vassar College in New York. And as you say, you were originally gonna do mathematics, but then you earned a degree in black studies. And so I was wondering what were the factors that made you switch your major while you were in college?
1: The thing I loved about mathematics was the problem solving, particularly with geometry. I actually uh, took a summer and went to one of the special high schools um, for boys in order to take solid geometry. Solid geometry was was not offered at my high school, High School of Music and Art. And so I went to another school and and took that and I just loved the problem solving. When I uh, got to the stages of mathematics, such as real analysis and differential equations, it was not my beloved geometry. It wasn't algebra. It wasn't problem solving. It was theory. And I learned what mathematics was and what mathematics was not. It was at that stage, which was in my junior year of, of, um, of college, that I decided that um, this was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, pontificate ther- theory and um, do those kinds of problems. And so I asked myself, what else do you like? What else are you, are you good at? I did find biology to be fascinating in high school. And I had taken a number of black studies courses at Vassar because at Vassar College, I was one of the students who started a black studies program at that college. It was one of the early black studies programs. Um, It was in the 1960s. And students of African ancestry were finding out in their Ivy League schools that the curriculum was not relating to them. At VAFSA, the curriculum was not relating to us. So we started a black studies program. It took quite a struggle and um, supported it. And I supported it by taking as many black studies courses as I could. Changing your major at the end of your junior year is, is quite ambitious And I found myself um, with enough credits in black studies to graduate on time. So I declared my major as black studies, what was called black studies at the time, it's now Africana studies, and um, dropped the mathematics and began taking as many science courses as I could because I wanted to go into medicine as an alternative to math. My senior project was a study of sickle cell anemia in the Poughkeepsie community where I actually surveyed um, people and did the testing to see if their cells actually sickled. Uh, And um, that became my link between medicine and
0: Africana studies. Dr. Thomas, I know that you were a freshman in college when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And so I was hoping that you can describe the events that took place in order for you and the other students to convince Vassar College to create the Black Studies major. The evening that the broadcast came on the news, we had a TV room
1: in the dorms and announced that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. Uh, My response was just one of shock, and I was stunned sitting in front of the television. I'll never forget that um and my eyes started welling up with tears one of the other young ladies in the dorm whom i had considered to be a friend who was not of african ancestry she had freckles and long red hair just just sat there like it was another story another news story and that struck me as um a major difference between people of european ancestry their culture and what was important to their culture and to their cultural identity compared to my cultural identity. I became much more aware of my heritage and my ancestry and more inclined to seek out students who looked like me and had similar backgrounds at that point after the assassination of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I joined the Students Afro-American Society and two years later, I was its president during the time that the African-American students were working towards establishing a a Black Studies uh, program at Vassar College. Interestingly enough, in a couple of weeks, there will be a uh, 50th reunion of the Africana Studies Department establishment, and more importantly, of the efforts that it took to get Vassar college to realize this was something important for its students of color. We had approached the administration in the appropriate fashions to establish a, a, a black studies department as we called it back then. And we're, were not taken seriously. This um, offense by the college of turning its back on us led to an escalation of how the African-American students felt about establishing this Black Studies program, which actually had had already began to grow, but had no um, longevity. It had no assurance that it would be a, 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 a department that allowed you to get credit, to get college credits, to to take it as a major. It was not legitimized, if you will. And on October 30th, of 1969, um, scores of black students, black female students, I will let you know, at Vassar College, seized the main administration building and locked it up, had a lockdown, a takeover, um, to let the college know how serious we were about establishing this black studies department as a reality and as a serious major for students at Vassar. This year, in a couple of weeks, I will be returning to Vassar College with other alumni who were there during the takeover to join Vassar College in celebrating the takeover. Something that at the time was, was a, just an offense, it was um, an insult to the college, um, but now is being celebrated because the Africana Studies Department at Vassar College is still very much alive and one of the best in the country, thanks to our establishing it. So this will be celebrated in in just a matter of weeks by uh, returning to campus and reviewing what it has meant to have that Africana Studies Department there. I ended up being one of the first Africana Studies or Black Studies majors to graduate from Vassar. And I went from there to the Johns Hopkins Medical School
0: wow that is just such an amazing story and congratulations to you and the other students for your efforts to literally create a legacy for vassar college so congratulations on that with regard to john hopkins i was hoping you can kind of talk about how you went from mathematics uh, to medicine and when it is that you discovered you wanted to do orthopedic surgery
1: i um got into the Johns Hopkins Medical School at a time when African American students were a rarity. The first student of African ancestry to ever be admitted to the medical school was a senior when I became a freshman. And so this was something new to Johns Hopkins, to have people of color, the uh, racism. That permeated the halls was was very evident and uh, thank God I I have a fighting spirit that I learned from my mother and I recognize people who are trying to demean me be or belittle me and I stand up Um, so I survived the atmosphere and the newness of having people who look like me walk the halls of Johns Hopkins and have the nerve to don a white coat In the end of the second year of Johns Hopkins Medicine, when you're in medical school, you begin to get exposed to the wards, the clinical aspect of medicine. And in doing so, I became exposed to orthopedic surgery. I had no idea that there was something called orthopedic surgery. I had no clue as to what it was but I took lectures on fracture care and basic orthopedic treatment and um, happened to have a rotation. And I say happened to because rotations are purely elective. And you may be assigned a rotation in cardiology. You can be assigned a rotation in, um, in, in renal pathology, kidney disease. I was assigned a rotation in orthopedic surgery. My first day on that rotation, I first of all found quite a difference in the attitude of the orthopedic surgeons versus the general surgeons I had been exposed to who were rather gruff and difficult to um, really be around. Um, they were high-strung and not pleasant people. They would insult the nurses in the operating room and, and, and treat women like we were nothing. Um, and this prompted a few comments from me, um, quite inappropriate comments for, for a person of my stature. Um, when these people started acting like they were less than human beings and treating the rest of the the world uh, like like garbage. Um, So general surgeons turned me off. I I liked surgery because of the art history and my manual dexterity and sculpting and painting. And I thought I would be good at surgery, but the general surgeons were not the people I wanted to be around. So I met an orthopedic surgeon. And he was smiling and jolly and about to do a case and invited me to scrub in, not just stand in the background and watch, but scrub in. Let me show you how to scrub in. So I'm scrubbing my hands, and I'm a lowly medical student, and I'm so excited that I'm going to actually participate in surgery. Um, I came into the operating room. I donned my gowns and, and gown and gloves and um, was invited to come into the table and watch what was going on. This procedure that was being done was for a a condition called slipped capital femoral epiphysis. And the patient was an African-American male who was pre-adolescent. Slipped capital femoral epiphysis is, um, a situation that can happen before the growth plate closes in the hip joint. And it tends to happen in overweight African-American males and the sl- hip actually slips. It's like the scoop slipping off the ice cream cone. So this creates a deformity in the hip where the cartilage cells sit um, and they have not yet been fused um, to the bone so the bone can move. The goal of surgery is to correct that deformity and correct the angular deformity that has occurred in that hip joint where the head is, uh, the femur is no longer st- lined straight up, but it's tilted over causing hip pain and um, discomfort and disability. This is done through what's called an osteotomy, which is when you cut the bone. Okay, osteo is bone, otomy is to cut. You cut the bone and reshape it so that the um, hip is now realigned with the socket. The ball is now sitting back under the socket where it belongs before it slipped off. And I saw this being done I saw that the angle of bone, the wedge and angulation of the pyramid of bone that had to be removed had been pre-calculated and the hip was realigned and it was solid geometry. I got so excited. My beloved geometry was being used in surgery to calculate just how to realign this bone so that the hip would return to normal and I was hooked on orthopedic surgery at that point. Not only did I see solid geometry, I was asked to put screws into the bone and the plate that was gonna hold everything in place. So I got to do some orthopedic surgery. And since my father, um, the handyman and and father that he had been had taught me carpentry, had taught me how to use saws and drills and and, and put screws in, I was at home in my element, putting screws in this hardware to keep this hip Um, in the position it had been determined that it should be in. So I I said, this is my field. Now, you see, I stumbled on this. I didn't know anything about orthopedics. And be it not for God, I would never have been exposed to to orthopedic surgery early in my medical school career. So it wasn't when I was a five-year-old that I said, I want to be a surgeon and I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. It was when I was grown enough to appreciate that what this specialty involved tapped on things that I had experienced that I had become comfortable with as a youngster and that now now I could be challenged to do on human beings. That's how I got into orthopedics.
0: Wow. That's a phenomenal story. And you did your residency, um, here at Yale. Uh, you were the first woman to graduate from Yale university. And additionally, you were the first, female African-American orthopedic surgeon in the United States. I was hoping you can comment on the adversities and challenges you faced by being the first.
1: When I found out that I had a love for orthopedic surgery and I was still a medical student, um, it was clear that there were very few women doing this. I, I didn't meet any women who were orthopedic surgeons. So I spoke to my chief resident. I said, you know, I really like this stuff but I don't see any women doing orthopedics. Do you think I can do this? He said, there's no reason you can't do this. So there was the encouragement I needed to apply for orthopedic residency. To all the programs I had applied, I would have been the first woman they trained. And I chose Yale because Yale was a kinder, gentler situation. The chairman Dr. Southwood had actually in, um, invented that osteotomy that I had seen done That in the operating room, my first orthopedic case. He was the chairman of orthopedics at, at Yale and, and was a, a very, very pleasant person whom I felt that I could be around. And the rest of the faculty that I met was likewise. Dr. Augustus White, who was the first African American assigned to the faculty of, of, of general surgery at Yale because orthopedics was a division of general surgery um, was on the faculty and 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 was there um, as a person of color who would be my attending physician there were two african-american males who were residents at yale already and um, who would be my chief residents and so i felt comfortable and there were two women in general surgery whom i hoped would have broken down the barriers of being in the operating room as a female these things encouraged me and I, I chose Yale and Yale chose me. Um, and, um, it was a wonderful feeling. Now, of course, there were those who were still, um, behind the times and who saw me with my black face and my huge Afro hairstyle walking in the operating room and, and felt that I didn't belong there. You know, women didn't belong in the operating room. What was this black woman doing there and challenged me and I stood up to challenges. To the extent that i hoped they thought i was crazy because then they would leave me alone and that was one of my strategies to, to be bold enough to have you know to, to run them off because they wouldn't know what i would say or do when i came to um the operating room i found a situation where there was a doctor's operating room and there was a nurse's operating room then there was a little closet for the male staff of course they couldn't be seen in their bvds next to a doctor so the, the gentlemen who cleaned the ore, who were primarily of African ancestry, had their own little locker room but there was no locker room for female surgeons. I spoke to the um, operating room supervisor about the situation and she invited me to get a small cubby hole in the nurse's locker room and, and hang my clothes in the shower where there was a rod. The next day I came back with a um, female symbol that I had drawn on a Um, An index card and some tape. I taped it to the doctor's locker room door, knocked once, and went in and claimed a locker. And there were lots of full-length empty lockers in this locker room. And um, I wasn't noticed but I was noticed coming out by that operating room supervisor and she was speechless. What were you doing in there? I said, it's a, I'm a doctor and that's the doctor's locker room. And that's where I will change my clothes. Well, somehow, somehow they miraculously found me a full length locker in the nurse's locker room. Um, one that was, was suitable to me. And I didn't have to barge in on these gentlemen who were half undressed, um, catching them in any kind of state but this was what I had to do to begin to correct the, 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 um, the wrongs and the gender bias that still exists in medicine. As difficult as it was to be a black woman in a surgical field that is dominated by Caucasian men, not only Caucasian men, but big, brawny, athletic Caucasian men, at times it was more difficult to be a female.
0: Wow. Well. Could you kind of provide some examples of, you know, the adversities you faced as being a woman versus some of the adversities you faced for being African-American?
1: To become an orthopedic surgeon back in the day, I had to do two years of general surgery and then three years of orthopedics. So I had to endure the same personalities Whole different town, whole different city, but the same rough personalities of these these um, general surgeons and the like, general surgeons, neurosurgeons, who felt they owned the world or acted like it. I scrubbed in on a neurosurgery case um, and the surgeon was notorious for cursing at the staff, the female staff and just being very unpleasant. So I scrubbed in and was in, my, and I hated neurosurgery. Let me just say that it was just not the most pleasant feel. But I, I, I scrubbed in and stood with you know silently in the room um, as instructed, while this neurosurgeon, who was performing the case, one of the attendings, was um, addressing the scrub nurse. Ah, oh, Peggy, you're so goddamn stupid. Ah, oh, Peggy, you're so goddamn slow this scrub nurse stood there and took this crap because that's the way it was. And they could talk to you any kind of way and you're supposed to sit there and not say a word. I walked out on the bastard. I walked out of that OR, not for me, but for Peggy and for the women who had put up with this and were expected to endure this without fighting back. I was an intern. This is a lowly place on the totem pole. And I walked out and this is what I mean about, you know, let them think I'm a little nuts because you just didn't do that to attending physicians as an intern. And I understand there was quite a bit of commotion behind that and there were those who tried to get me fired. But guess what, Mr. Attending Neurosurgeon was gone before I was. He moved on to another institution The gender bias continued through training, through my position at Johns Hopkins as assistant professor. And um, if I didn't point it out, no one would say a thing. I was at a meeting of faculty when we were determining who we would rank to become a Johns Hopkins orthopedic resident so it was interview season and we had 600 people for five slots five residency slots we were at the vital meeting where we determine who is going to be ranked number one who's going to be in that first five who's going to be in that first ten during the meeting the residency director was addressing those who had interviewed the different candidates. And he turned to um, one of my colleagues and said, Dr. Johnson, what did you think of, of this young man as a candidate? You interviewed him. Then he turned to me and said, Claudia, what did you think? I said, do you realize that for the last two hours, you've been addressing every male faculty member in this room as doctor and every female faculty member by their first name? Well, it's the first time I saw this person speechless. But, it, you know, he didn't speak to me for the rest of my, my tenure at, at Johns Hopkins. He would walk with me in the hall with his head down, refusing to address my humanity, because I spoke up. And I had many opportunities to speak up and deal with the bias, and they, they thought I was crazy. or they, they didn't know how to address it, but it was true. The women were disrespected. So I left my mark wherever I went. And people learned not to mess with me and to treat me with the utmost respect to avoid embarrassment for them because I would speak up. And that's what I had to do as a female in this specialty, still undeserved. Minorities are still underserved, minorities of color. We have, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but we have a great number of Asians represented in orthopedics. They are not an underrepresented minority, but women and people of color are still at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to specialties that are diverse. Diversity sucks in orthopedics and it will continue to suck if people don't continue to speak up and fight for the dignity that we deserve.
0: That is absolutely powerful. So thank you so much for sharing your stories. I know it's very difficult too. And so I I do sincerely appreciate it. What do you think needs to be done in the field of orthopedic surgery in order to increase diversity for both gender as well as underrepresented minorities?
1: This is something I accomplished at Johns Hopkins when I returned as a faculty member. And I looked at the photos on the wall of the last 50 years of orthopedic surgery at Johns Hopkins and saw all the white men in their starched white coats and starched pants standing up for the annual photos. And saw how few, how minuscule the number was of people of color and females who had had the honor of graduating from that specialty at Johns Hopkins. I made it my goal, my mission to change the face of orthopedic surgery. The way I did that was to volunteer to play a major role in the selection process of candidates for interview. Those 600 applicants all vying for five spots were being sorted out by the residency director the current residency director so i volunteered to take half and i went through the applications and when i came across a person of color or a female who had the, the credentials and the resume to compete at johns hopkins i made sure they got an interview because you see A lot of what gender bias is, a lot of what racism is, is not seeing people. So the young man whose father and grandfather were orthopedic surgeons, oh, he's getting in. It doesn't matter what his grades are. He's gonna be offered a spot. The people who have the privilege of having had an ancestry of privilege will be seen differently from that female, from that African-American, from that Latino who's applying. So I used a different set of glasses, if you will, to look at applicants and made sure that minorities and women were well represented.
0: Yeah, and you won the AOS Diversity Award in 2008 for your efforts at Johns Hopkins, correct?
1: That's correct graduated graduated single-digit single, single digit numbers of um, females and um, people of color from that program. And when I finished with my plans and made my faculty members see these people that, they, that look so different as viable candidates, 32% of the residents were African-American and 20% were female at Johns Hopkins. That's how you do it you devise your own strategy for the situation you're in. And Hopkins had a legacy then for uh, for diversity. Any program now and there are programs that have never trained a female, have never trained a person of color, and those programs now I I tell I advise my mentees don't even look at them because they haven't done it by now. They don't want you, and you're going to go through hell. But once you develop a legacy, as being a diverse program, then you will attract diverse candidates who will enrich your residency program. And that's what I did.
0: Wow. And I know that, um, I do want to talk about your autobiography that you wrote called "God spare life. And I was hoping you can talk about the inspiration for writing this book.
1: When I was, um, 40 years old, uh, Actually, I was 39. I uh, lived in the the St. Thomas um, area in the the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, For me, marriage and starting a family was prohibited by the amount of work I had to do in orthopedics. It was just for females, not an advantage in my day. For a man, he had a cook and a, a bottle washer And a sexual partner marriage for a man in training and living an arduous life was positive for me it would have been more work for me because men were not as evolved as they have come to be in modern day let's leave it like that so I did not marry until I was um, well out of my um, training I was 35 years old and my husband lived in the Virgin Islands, and on the island of St. Thomas. I moved to St. Thomas and established a private practice. On August the 17th of 1989, Hurricane Hugo ravished St. Thomas and I got very sick after that from the stress and the trauma of going through a major hurricane that was a category five when it came over this 12 mile long, four mile wide island. And I actually found myself in kidney failure. I had to leave the island, come back north for medical treatment and was told that I would not be able to return to work um, because I had um, kidney failure and um, It would be too stressful my sister volunteered a kidney and at the time of what was supposed to be a kidney transplant my surgeon discovered cancer in both of my kidneys and he discovered that through the grace of God because he went and looked at both kidneys which you normally don't do to a recipient of a kidney transplant rather than receiving my sister's kidney both my kidneys were removed in June of 1990 and I went on dialysis and I was not able to work I was not able to return to the Virgin Islands I was on hemodialysis in Baltimore I'm not an idle person and so I did not sit around all day watching TV or I, I, I had to be busy so I started writing and in a way, my writing was a catharsis because I started writing about that hurricane that had been the most terrifying experience I, I had in my life, even to, to this day. Because a second, it felt as if life could be lost when that storm was coming through. 17 years later, I had a published autobiography. That's how long it took me after I returned to work. And I continued to write, I continued to edit, and and got published. And my autobiography is called God Spare Life. This is an expression that's used in the Caribbean um, when people say goodbye or see you next time. It's instead of, if the creek don't rise, (laughs) it's God Spare Life. So see you next time, God Spare Life, if God spares life. I named my autobiography after that expression And um, it filled the idle hours for the 15 months that I was not able to return to productive lifestyle.
0: Wow. Uh, I want to talk about, um, you have faced so many storms, both, you know, literal and metaphorical throughout your life. And I was hoping you can comment on how coming back from illness and coming back from literally surviving Hurricane Hugo, how that impacted your practice as a physician and as a surgeon and and your care of patients?
1: Having experienced a life-threatening illness, uh, because believe me, my my life was threatened many times um, when I was on dialysis. Uh, It brings me closer to my patients who are fighting something Many of them don't believe they can overcome the cancer that I found or overcome the loss of a limb. And I can tell them my story and let them know that I was near death, that there were many times that that the devil tried to take me, but that um, God spared my life. And it is my spiritual aspect that has allowed me to be a survivor those of us who go through life or try to go through life without god are at a loss and i'm not talking about religiosity or any particular um faith base but you've got to know there's a higher being than yourself and there will be times when you cannot do for self and you need to rely upon God. As people say, let go, let God, let go of that struggle that you're trying to control and let God in your life. This is the only reason that I survived the storm that I went through when I was so ill. Um, it's the things that happened to me, a grand mal seizure, been bleeding on my brain in a coma for four days. Yet I came out of that with a repeat scan of my brain showing no bleeding at all. A potassium level of 8.4. Sitting in the ER in heart block and talking like I was just fine when that should have killed me. Fluid overload on dialysis. Having 30 pounds removed from my body, 30 pounds of fluid, because the peritoneal dialysis that I started out with was not effectively removing fluid from my body. There are things that should have killed me during the time that I was in kidney failure that did not. And when it was not my own faith in God, it was those around me I surrounded myself with whose faith in God allowed me to continue to survive. Being told that I could not get a kidney after enduring the year that I was required to endure to make sure my cancer had not spread I had cancer in both kidneys and that to make sure that that cancer had not spread my surgeon insisted on waiting a year and then retesting me to make sure my body was free of cancer and after waiting that year being told that I had picked up some kind of antibody that would cause me to reject my sister's kidney I could not get a transplant at 98 pounds and knocking on death's door I am not a a short person 98 pounds Dying and having someone tell me God has already take care, taken care of that problem. Don't worry, God already took care of that. So I'm here today because of, of faith, um, because of my spirituality, which just supersedes everything. It supersedes people being mean to you. People trying to bring you down, little girl, when you're on that ward and they don't think you belong there. So they're gonna beat the hell out of you and try to get you to quit. But you've got to know that there's a power higher than them, a power higher than you, that will get you through any adversity. If you grab onto your spirituality, your spiritual side, and let that lead you.
0: Wow, that's phenomenal. Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, for talking with me. And I know that you have things to do, so I do want to talk about my final set of questions for you and talking about the future. um, You have done a lot for the field of orthopedic surgery, and that is such an understatement, and done so much uh, for improving the diversity within our field. And I was hoping you can talk about what your goals are and what your future projects are. At this
1: stage, My goals are to stop the assassination of African-American males, the most endangered species on the planet. Any week you can turn on the news and find an example of a black male in this country being slaughtered because he doesn't look like your little boy at home or you make assumptions when you see them, oh, they must be up to no good. Oh, he tried to, oh, he had a gun. Oh, he was trying, another black youth slaughtered. This has got to stop. And it will only stop when people are enlightened about their racism, but no one ever, you know, you see pictures of people grinning, hordes of white males grinning uh, with the charred body of a black male hanging from a tree where they have assassinated this person only because they were black and even though this used to happen decades ago believe me it's still happening now in a different fashion I would like to and I'm in the process of um, starting a school for descendants of American slaves male descendants of American slaves because we never got our 40 acres and a mule but I want us to have the the sense of privilege and entitlement to the good things in this country. I want our children to be educated from the age three as to who they are. And I want that education to be excellent, top of the line, and available to our young people so that they will recognize the, the racism and the hatred when they see it, and they will be able to deal with it. And we will stop losing our children to the hate that still exists in this country. That's my passion at this time. I want to see that change. I want to see our children survive because we are losing our black males to racism and to bias in good old America.
0: Yes, that's uh, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I do want to talk about the last set of questions that I have which are probably um, talking more about the field of orthopedic surgery than the important discussion that is the lack of gender or gender and racial diversity in orthopedic surgery. And so with regard to the final five questions that I have for you, Dr. Thomas, my first is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why?
1: I stopped doing surgery after my transplant because of the immunosuppression and, um, The favorite thing that I do now is to use my old-fashioned medical education that started at Johns Hopkins, which remains an excellent teaching institution. I am using what I learned in medical school to evaluate patients. And I can't tell you how many times I've had patients say, this is the first time anybody examined me that way. This is the first time anybody asked me to take my clothes off so they could actually look at me. This is the first time in 20 years that someone has diagnosed my pain and I have been pain-free. These are the things that make my day. Being an excellent diagnostician, listening to patients, examining patients, and finding out that that so-called back pain that they had three neurosurgical operations on their spine for was actually coming from that arthritic hip. Is nobody bothered to examine your hip. Wow. Making people better, pe- making people know that I care, making people know that I am determined to find out what is wrong with them and to fix it, to make it better, is um, what I enjoy doing now. I also have developed a passion for the evaluation and treatment of osteoporosis. Which is a, a, the biggest example of gender bias in medicine? More women die of osteoporosis than die of breast cancer. Yet it remains undertreated, underdiagnosed, and an orthopedic surgeon can put that that screw in your hip after you've broken it, and send you out after you've healed with no plans to treat your osteoporosis with medications that are available to keep you from breaking the next hip. And today that's still happening because people act like they don't really care about old women. Well, hello, 25% of men over the age of 50 are osteoporotic. And we'll, you know, 50% of women, there's a huge number of men who've never had a bone density scan. And so the treatment of bone loss has become a passion of mine in like clinical practice. And I have discovered osteoporosis in a number of people and put them on medication to prevent the fractures associated with this, this disease. And I have told them, I want you to take this medication because I don't want you to die of a hip fracture. My own father died of a hip fracture, but that was 1981. And we didn't even know why he was dying within a year of having broken his hip. Osteoporosis has evolved and people have started to do research it. And now we know that men die of hip fractures too and that we, people are dying at rates that are unacceptable because this disease is being overlooked. Why? Because people perceive it as a female disease. So I've moved to an area of Florida that houses the largest number of retirees in the country. And this is my, this is my garden. This is my audience. These are the people I want to treat their, the osteoporosis in. And since I've moved down here, this has become a passion of mine and I have become the osteoporosis queen.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Um, My next question for you is, I know that you probably get many, many invitations for presentations and interviews. Now I was wondering what your favorite topic to talk about is when you get invited to do presentations and interviews.
1: When it's a medical presentation, My topic is Grand Rounds, um, but for Grand Rounds is osteoporosis. I presented Grand Rounds uh, at Harvard and the Brigham uh, last October. And um, at the end of my presentation, I asked the room of gentlemen what the issue was and why weren't uh, people with osteoporosis being treated. And I got nothing back. There was silence because we know that uh, the the number of people being sent for treatment once they've broken a bone was 18%. Now, whoopee do it's up to 24%. Well, that's still piss poor. And I want the people who are overlooking this disease, sitting in this audience to tell me why they're not referring people for treatment for a curable disease that's killing people. And unfortunately, the gentleman in the audience had no answer. So my next slide was gender bias. Because that's my answer. You don't have an answer for me, this is my answer. Prove me wrong. That is um, my favorite topic because I can shame people. <laughs> now, if it's, an, if it's not a clinical audience, I'm speaking to some um, people who live down here in a couple of weeks. Um, it, it's it's my, hist- my history, my story. Or um, sometimes they want to hear a medical topic. And so one of my talks is excuse my French let me tell you why your ass hurts <laughs> and things of that nurture you know what where people where people don't know well, why am I having pain in my buttocks um what is this what is that what is what is hip arthritis what is a spine problem and so I can put clinical topics in a very um understandable term for patients and, and my audiences and speak to them about that
0: well, that's amazing! Oh my gosh! And that's a great title, top or uh, title for your presentation. That's well done. Um, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? My
1: favorite memory is one of, of being that medical student who is being exposed to orthopedics for the first time and goes into the orthopedic clinic, opens the door to the orthopedic clinic as it used to be. And there are people standing around the room because the seats are taken. There are people with crutches, people in casts, long leg casts. Um, in, in the in the room, the big room where all the action takes place, there's the sound of saws buzzing, as casts are removed, sawed off the people. There's the sound of the metal buckets clanging, that contain the water that we used when we put our plaster of Paris. Uh, rolls in there and soak them in order to wrap a cast. There's that man who's strapped to the the rack, if you will, um, a a table that has the feet and the pelvis supported um, as if he's being stretched (laughs) in the rack and we're wrapping plaster to make a body cast for that fracture that we now know how to fix and put metal in so that people don't have to be in body casts anymore. These are my first impressions of orthopedics and impressions that I love because my type A personality said, wow, let me get to work here, what can I do? Oh, give me that roll of plaster, let me put that on. And as an artist, putting on a cast used to be a very decorative procedure. Um, it was something that you did with, with pride and, and you smoothed down that plaster of Paris until you could see no seams and it was shining. Um, this all represents the passion of being an orthopedic surgeon. And that is my earliest memory. Some of the passion has gone out of it, but being able to fix people and having people come to you by the hordes because you're the only one who can set that broken arm or set that broken leg is one of my favorite memories of orthopedic surgery.
0: Hmm. I know that you've spent a lot of time in the clinic, in the operating room, treating many, many patients, but I was wondering what your favorite activities are outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? I don't want to discourage anybody, but at this
1: stage I have very little time outside of medicine because of the conspiracy of having us do notes to the satisfaction of the insurance companies, which consumes a tremendous amount of time um, and keeps us captive to a certain format. Um, That that really leaves me with little time. I am involved in a church and um, that is my social life. So that has become um, the thing that I do when I really need to be around uh, loving people who know me and who care. Uh, I have uh, a lot of plants and I, I, I'm, a, I'm a plant keeper, if you will, as opposed to a zookeeper. Living in Florida allows me to um, maintain beautiful flowering plants and, and that is really my, my time to um, have my <clears throat> spiritual sessions with myself and with living things that give you so much beauty for so little work so um tending my garden is um one of my favorite activities and and making sure that my my plants are are well and healthy
0: and and that they bloom for me and my final question for you dr thomas is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? My advice is to look at the patient as a human being
1: and not, oh, the leg. Oh, let's go see the hip. Oh, did you find the shoulder in the room I told you that the shoulder was in? You know, we're, we're not body parts. We're human beings who are going through a hard time. If we're in your care, we're having something fixed or having something replaced and we're scared, scared to death. We need that orthopedic surgeon to be gentle, to be understanding, to talk to us, not at us, not about us as patients, and to cherish that, por- that portion of, of being a caregiver for patients, to cherish the ability to make people who are in pain, people who are hurting, better, and to do it with a smiling face and not as a chore that we have to cross off the list. See human beings as human beings and give all your
0: passion to that. Hmm. That'll make you a great doctor. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, for your amazing words and sharing your story with us. And I sincerely, I know you're very busy, so I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak with me.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for reaching out to me.
0: I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Claudia Thomas. If you'd like to learn more about her life, I encourage you to read her autobiography entitled God Spare Life. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or YouTube. You can find us on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. Please spread the word. Tell your friends, your mentors, and your medical students about this podcast. If you have any questions or would like to hear anyone you know on this podcast, please let me know at shecanfixitpod at gmail.com. I would like to take a moment to thank those who helped to make this podcast possible. A sincere thank you to Dr. Mary O'Connor for her mentorship in creating this podcast. Thank you to the amazing attendings here at Yale, Dr. Carrie Swaggert, Dr. Adrian Sochi, Dr. Elizabeth Gardner, Dr. Andy Halim, and now Dr. Lisa Latanza for being exemplary role models for us. And finally, many, many, many thanks to my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanni-Kirk, without whom this podcast could not be possible. Finally, I do have a special message from my dear friend Arnu in South Africa. Arnu said, let the record show, Arnu said that if I mentioned him in this podcast, he would stop smoking cigarettes. Therefore, my dear friend Arnu, no more cigarettes. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode with Dr. Claudia Thomas, And we hope to bring you more great interviews on the She Can Fix It podcast.